Let me uh, ditto what Sam just said. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, you rock. We celebrate you this morning. For in reality, you have the most difficult and demanding job of anyone in the world. You have that, you have that role of molding and shaping little hearts and minds, and while you're doing that, through all the hassles and stresses and crying to reflect Jesus. And so we applaud you. And husbands, I always like to remind you guys each and every year to make sure that the mother of your children is honored today because Father's Day comes next. <laughs> so make sure you honor those ladies, how you treat them, how they're going to treat you for Father's Day. Before we get started this morning, I want to speak to an issue in the news, which after almost 50 years, the Supreme Court may tear down Roe v. Wade as a law of the land, giving it to the states and for people to decide through the state legislators what the law for their state will be. For us as Christians, for Christ's church, this is not a political issue, but a biblical one. All of our views are to be shaped by what we believe the Bible says about it. And we believe the Bible declares that life begins at conception. That God gives personhood to life in the womb, thus from start to finish it is a child. This life in the womb is made in God's image, and thus it's to be precious and valued. It's sacred. So we elevate the sanctity of life over its perceived quality. Because of this, and because this life in the womb is defenseless and helpless, we believe it should be protected. But God also calls us not to forget the mothers who are in crisis pregnancy and the women who have made the difficult and painful decision in their past to abort. Our goal is to never judge, but to come alongside these women to support them before, during, and after their pregnancy, and to help those women who have had an abortion to find love, healing, and forgiveness of God. This is why my wife and I support Options for Women, a crisis pregnancy center in Bowling Green, where a longtime friend of 35 years is the executive director. That's why your pastors, as we've talked about, we'd like to partner with a local birthright in carrying out this ministry of loving women and, and kids. Before I pray this morning, I, I want to let you know that I, I went to our regular attenders list, which is 144 people in all, and I prayed for each one of you by name before you came here today. Because I really felt like um, God wanted to do something very specific through his Holy Spirit in your lives. And so let's go ahead and pray for that. Because when we do come on Sunday mornings, we really come to meet with God. And through worshiping him and through hearing his word preached, we pray that there be something that we would open ourselves up to that he really wants to do to change us. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you again for mothers, and I pray that each mother, Lord, would just have a, a wonderful day of them being celebrated and honored. Lord, we also lift up this decision uh, concerning abortion, Lord, and, and, and our hearts just want to go out to all women who are in crisis pregnancy, Lord, and we just pray, Lord, that as a church that we could some way be a part of loving them and, and showing them, Lord, that um, there may be another way. Lord, we lift up the message this morning, and I pray that I would be your mouthpiece, that you would speak through me, that everyone here this morning would know that they're here uh, because you want to speak something very specific into their lives. So, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds that we would allow you to work, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is Mortify Your Sin. We're, it's part of a series that we're doing, which is 
the foundational core classes that we believe are foundational to discipleship and ultimately uh, to help people uh, see and, and know and love Jesus in a deeper way. I want to begin by sharing with you a morning prayer. Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, fallen to lust, or lost my temper. I've not used hurtful language or judged anyone. I've not been greedy, grumpy, nasty, or overindulgent. And I'm really happy about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed, and from then on, I'm going to need a whole lot more help. (laughs) For some of us, the battle actually begins not the moment we get out of bed, but the moment we open our eyes in the morning. We don't even need to get out of bed before our thought life can turn to anger or bitterness, resentment, lust, covetousness, negativity, worry, pessimism, and unbelief. You see, we're going to find out this morning that our sin struggles have less to do with our behavior and actions and more to do with the conditions of our heart. The reason we can wake up on any given morning and our minds are already gravitating towards sin is because of what we've stored in our hearts. The heart we go to bed with is the heart we wake up with. I like to tell people that circumstances don't cause, circumstances reveal. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what he's saying there, whether it's our language or whether it's our attitudes or whether it's our responses or how we react to circumstances, it flows from the condition of our hearts. Circumstances don't cause unhealthy emotions or reactions. They don't cause outbursts of anger, acting out, or turning to idols for comfort or relief. What I mean by that is when we face stressful, frustrating, disappointing circumstances, our unresolved conflict, our response reveals the condition of our hearts. And one reason God allows those kinds of circumstances in our lives is to expose what we've stored in our hearts. And he exposes it because he wants to set us free so that we might be a greater reflection of him to the people he has called us to love and serve. Some of you have heard this story before, many have not. But around the six-year mark of mine and Lisa's marriage, it was both wonderful and difficult. Difficult to the point that, on my suggestion, we go to counseling. We had been having regular arguments that didn't go well or end well. In my mind, Lisa was the reason for my eruptions, and it's important to note that I was a pastor at that time. I was both apprehensive and yet excited to go to counseling because I knew Lisa needed to be fixed. (laughs) Man, they know us. (laughs) So, of course, the counselor starts on me. And for the first couple months, as he's working on me, he finally gets to the point and says, Jim, you can be a brute towards Lisa. I bristled. I left there reviewing in my mind all the ways I was a great husband and all the things I did to show Lisa how I loved her that so many other husbands didn't do. What pride and arrogance. But God wasn't going to let me get away with that, and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he showed me just how ugly my sin of brutishness was and how I would say things to Lisa that I would never think of saying to another person. My heart broke and I wept over the knowledge of just how hurtful I had been to Lisa and how far off I was in loving her as Christ loved the church and died for her. Instead of dying for her, I was actually killing her heart. Sin is ugly. 
Sin is destructive. Sin damages the ones you love. Sin is an offense against the holy God. Wages of sin is always death. The title of the message is Mortify Your Sin. So what does it mean to mortify the sin in our lives? Webster's Dictionary gives the following definition. To subdue or deaden the body or bodily appetites through abstinence or self-inflicted pain. There was a custom in ancient religion where the follower would starve themselves or deprive themselves of all comfort or even whip themselves in order to subdue their bodily desires and punish themselves for their sin. Is this what the Bible instructs us to do when it says mortify your sin? Where can we even find the word mortify in our Bibles? Well, if you had a King James Bible still, you'd find it in two places. Romans 8.13 says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye live through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Colossians 3.5 says, Mortify the members of your body which are of the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Biblically speaking, to mortify sin means to put sin to death. The big question we want to answer this morning is how? How can I put sin to death in my life? Paul's letter to the Colossians reveals to his readers how they can't do it. Colossians 2.23 says, and it's speaking about the law or self-imposed discipline or living by rules and regulations. He says, those things lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Our self-will and self-discipline have no power over the sin in our lives. Paul's trying to help believers in Christ to understand that you cannot law your way or rules your way through your sin. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps or white-knuckle it with all the strength and resolve you can muster to achieve repentance and freedom from sin that is entangling your life. Your behavior, your sinful actions, it's not the first issue of importance. It's not the place to do the battle. Mortifying your sin is a heart issue that needs heart surgery that only the great physician can do. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's just like any bodily surgery that you've experienced. You've got to cooperate. You first need to realize something is wrong that you have no remedy for. You need to choose to submit yourself to a doctor's examination. You need to listen to the doctor's diagnosis as to what ails you and his prescription for the cure. You need to have trust in your physician that he or she knows what they're talking about and have your best interest at heart. And you actually have to be willing to lay down on the surgical table, surrendering yourself to the surgeon's scalpel. It's the belief that allowing your body to be subjected to surgical pain will lead to your healing and future health. It's no different spiritually. If you want to put your sin to death, you must submit to the spiritual scalpel of the great physician. Have you ever asked yourself why you can be consistent in reading your Bible daily and prayer and attend church on Sunday and faithfully go to a GC and demonstrate outward expressions of giving and service and yet treat your wife and children with anger, impatience, or neglect? Or treat your husband with indifference, disdain, or disrespect? Or how you can hold bitterness, resentment in your heart and be so unforgiving towards those who have hurt you. Be filled with worry, anxiety, or fear about your life, your health, your kids, your world, or your future. 
Why you so easily respond with anger and frustration over the simplest inconvenience, disruption, or slight? Why you willingly go to your phone or computer to seek out pornographic images or veg out in front of your TV, computer, or game system hours on end? Why you overindulge in food, going to the fridge every time you're emotionally down or upset? Why you do not stop at that first beer or glass of wine each night, but instead stop after the third or the fourth glass? Why you work 70-hour weeks when you know deep down it's a compulsion that is tied to your identity and you place work before God, family, and everything else? Why you continue to live in a friendship or in a relationship where you know deep down it's not honoring to God, but you refuse to let it go? I'm going to go back in my story a few more years before I was married. And I was radically saved at the age of 23 and was discipled by two young men named Chris and Mark on the campus of Clemson University. Three months later, I returned to St. Louis and I got involved with my old girlfriend who actually had been saved three years earlier. We were both Christians and I began to believe that this would be the woman I was going to marry. I was growing in Christ as one of the pastors of my new church began to mentor me in God's word and challenge me to take on ministry responsibility and leadership, which I was finding fulfillment. My relationship with this young woman continued, but one thing I didn't tell you, that even though we were both Christians, it was not a relationship that was morally honoring to God. We had been together off and on for over seven years, and you see, I really wanted her. I, I didn't want to lose her. And at the same time, I wanted more of God but refused to let her go. I actually felt like I was, had my arms tied to two ropes and they were attached to a couple stallions and those stallions were pulling me in each direction, almost feeling like I was being pulled apart at the seams. You see, I was struggling with idolatry, trying to decide in my life which God I was going to give my heart to and serve. Jesus let me know the problem I had was I had two masters and I didn't want to give either of them up. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God. And in this case, he says money, but fill in anything there. Whatever idol that it is that you have that you're struggling with, you cannot serve both God and your idol. The scriptures are clear in at Exodus 20, where Moses brings down the Ten Commandments from God to the people of Israel, and the number one commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not bow down and worship idols. It reminded me of Bob Dylan's song, you got to serve somebody. Well, the Bible says you got to worship somebody. We have been made to worship, and it will be either God, or it will be self, money, sex, power, position, material wealth, or it'll be another person. The list is endless on the things that we can have as our idols. I wish I could say that I chose Jesus over her. He allowed me to wallow around in the muck and mire of my sin for a while, and then he took my idol away. I was severely broken. I was devastated. At first, because... I I badly desired to keep my idol. And then I was gloriously broken as I saw the ugliness of my sin of idolatry and sexual immorality. Glorious because it led me to repent and find forgiveness and cleansing and growth. New life in Christ. 
and to find God's call upon my life. And most often when you finally repent, you turn to God, you trust and wait on Him, you end up with a blessing far better than the idol that you were worshiping. My blessing is my beautiful wife, Lisa, of which on June 3rd, we'll be married 33 years. So what is idolatry? Well, the Old Testament involved the worship of graven images made by human hands that represented different gods who served the people in different capacities. That's why they had so many gods, is because each god just served in them in one purpose in one area. The pagan religion of polytheism had a god for every need that were worshipped, and they were looked to for provision or protection, guidance, success, or fulfillment. Modern-day idolatry is anything you love, treasure, prioritize, identify with, or look to for need fulfillment apart from God. Something or someone you must have to be happy, or feel safe, or feel secure, or feel important, or to find peace, to find satisfaction or fulfillment outside of God. We tend to seek out idols to satisfy unmet needs, such as loneliness, love, relief, comfort, or to distract us, or to numb our pain. To try to find peace, or rest, or joy, or happiness, or safety and security, to gratify a desire, or to feel good about ourselves. And often the idols we choose, they become addictions, things we crave, things we believe we can't live or be happy without. Even though we know down deep that we aren't living in the will of God as we continue to worship and serve our idol. Sometimes our idols start out as good things. They, they're wonderful things in our lives that we eventually take to the extreme for we believe that it's going to fill that void left in our heart that only was meant to be filled by God. It's interesting this week, <clears throat> Craig shared something with me from the sexual integrity material that really stuck. And he said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And there's three aspects to that. And the first is reconnecting with God as your first love. It reminded me of um, the letters that Jesus had uh, to the churches, the seven churches in, in Revelation. And, and each church, he saw them as they were and he commended them for certain things, but then he reproved them for certain things. And the church in, <clears throat> in Ephesus, <clears throat> excuse me, he commended them for their theological soundness and their standing against false teaching. He commended them for uh, their great service and the good deeds that they were doing. But he says this to them. He says, this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. Your first love being Jesus himself. And then I thought of when Jesus was asked the question, teacher, tell us, what is the greatest commandment? <clears throat> And Jesus says it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. And he says that is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first thing, connection to overcome addictions or idols in our life or to, to put sin to death in our life is with God as our first love. But the second is connecting with others in community. Realizing that power over sin, it never comes in isolation. You know, so often we get tired of our sin and we get tired of this sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess way of living. And we're trying to do it on our own and we're trying to, to self-will ourselves to change and it never happens. Because it was never meant to happen in isolation, but in community. 
and confessional community, for the devil knows that convincing you to live in hiding is his key strategy to keep you in bondage to your idolatry. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we so often see this verse in light of people who are physically ailing, and we want to pray over them for physical healing. But as I studied this verse, it goes deeper than that and further than that because it can apply to a spiritual healing or emotional healing or even a relational healing. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healing comes in community. And the third is connecting with self, having some spiritual self-awareness, which involves understanding your triggers. Something happens in your life. You feel lonely or rejected or maybe unloved. Maybe you feel disappointed or frustrated or when there's unresolved conflict in your life with a loved one. And when you're feeling anxious or worried or trying to feel relief from pressure or stress or when you try to numb your pain, what's your go-to? Jesus wants your go-to to be him. If it's not God, then you have revealed what has replaced God as an idol in your heart. The idol that you're looking to, to meet an unmet need in your life. So first, in order to mortify sin, we need to pursue connection with God, with others, and with self. But the second thing is understanding who you are and whose you are. This is the essence of the transformative power of the gospel in our lives. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint, not a sinner. This is the issue I have with Christians attending AA, which I think has been good for many people and is why we as pastors support the ministry being here. They have it right in the importance of confessional community and accountability. But my issue with them is this. Hi, Jim, I'm an alcoholic. And each person, each week, for regardless the number of years, is supposed to introduce themselves this way as I'm forever an alcoholic, whether I drink another drink again or not. I know that it's meant to help the people in their group to stay vigilant in the fight. But for the Christian, this can never be your identity. Your sin cannot be your identity. A Christian should stand and proclaim, Hi, I'm Jim. I am God's precious and beloved child who has struggled with the sin of drunkenness. What's the difference? Proverbs 23.7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Why does your identity matter so much? Because in the putting to death of your sin, your focus determines what you do. If you think that your identity is a sinner, then your focus is going to be on the sin because the sin is your identity. It is who you are. So sinners tend to take their troubled emotions to their sinful idol for relief. But if your identity is a saint, your focus turns to the one who declares the wonders of who you are in his son. You see, saints take their troubles and their pressures and their stresses and anxieties and their pain to Jesus Christ. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the gospel declares you are a child of the one living and true God, that you are saved by grace through faith. You have been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus. 
that his work is finished and complete and you can add nothing, that you are declared justified in his sight, saved from eternal condemnation, saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You have been adopted as God's child and given the wonders of a new family. You have a new identity in Christ as his beloved child, holy and dearly loved. You are precious in his sight. You are born again, a new creation, a wonderful new masterpiece of God. You have the promise of a place prepared for you in his eternal kingdom. You have promises that he will never leave you or forsake you, that you will never be separated from his love, that he loves you with an everlasting love, that no one can ever snatch you from his hand, that you are indwelled and sealed by the Spirit who is your counselor, comforter, helper, and guide, that Christ himself intercedes for you at the Father's throne in heaven, that God will work all things for good good, that you've been given everything for life and godliness, that he is always working in your life to make you more like Jesus and has given you everything you need to put death, sin, and idolatry in your life. This is whose you are. This is what he's done for you through the gospel. And concerning your unmet needs, the gospel declares in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory. Your God is a God who loves to meet your needs in his special way, according to his perfect plan for your life, and he has unlimited ability to do that. Can I hear an amen? Amen. This is the essence of the gospel, which touches every nook, every cranny, every corner of your life. The gospel is your life. It's resurrection life. It is life to the full. How can any of us choose, knowing all of that, to turn to an idol when we understand that the gospel reveals so clearly who God is, what he's done for us, what he continues to do for us, and how very much he loves and cares for us? It's time for you and I to renounce and rebuke the lies that we believed that an idol can do for us what only the one true God can do. The lie of idolatry actually began in the garden. And it's a lie that says God is not enough. You must renounce the devil's lies that have led to your idolatry and instead fill your mind and heart with the truth of the gospel. I want to take a look at a few passages on what Jesus says about this. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 30. John chapter 8, starting in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And Jesus said to the Jews who believed, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jews, and, and Jews that had placed their faith in him, that they believed that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And he told them how they can know if they're truly his disciples. He says, By continuing in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So basically, it's the truth of God's word 
that has the ability in our lives to set us free from sin and idolatry. Let's go on to verse 43. We'll read verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. <clears throat> so right here, Jesus is, is revealing the reality of the spiritual warfare that goes on every day of our lives. There's truth that sets us free and there's lies that keep us in bondage. There's sin that has the power to overcome uh, there's, there's truth that has the power to overcome sin and idolatry in our lives, and there's lies that keeps us in bondage to our sin and to the idols in our life. Let's look at uh, chapter 10, 3 through 5. And this is speaking in regards to Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 3. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. This is speaking of Jesus as our shepherd and it's speaking of us as sheep. And basically, back in those days, there would be a sheepfold that had maybe seven different flocks in it. And one of the shepherds would go there and call out the sheep, and lo and behold, only his sheep would come out from those seven flocks because those sheep specifically knew his voice. And that's what Jesus is speaking to his disciples and his followers to say, you have to get to the point where you know his voice in such a way and distinguish it in such a way, and it's a voice that is bound for protection and provision that you're not going to go to any other stranger's voice. You're not going to believe in lies any longer from the devil because you so clearly know Jesus' voice, you know it's the voice of truth, and you know it's a voice that has the best interest for your life that you're going to follow that voice and not believe in the lies of the devil. The devil's behind every sin, every idol, every lie. And oh, how he can make them look so good and appealing. He's a liar and the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. And what can set you free from those lies? It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus. It's knowing and following his voice, the voice of truth. Bondage equals listening to and following lies. Freedom equals listening and following to the voice of truth. We know that Romans 6.23 declares that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus confirms this through his own words. In John 10, he says, The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. If the scriptures are true, then have no doubt about it. The idol in your life is set out to steal, kill, and destroy the full life that Jesus offers. Do you want the full life Jesus promises you? Then you've got to put to death the idol in your life. How? By the truth of the gospel. Listen, the most important preacher in your life, it's not Sam. It's not any other pastor at Emmanuel. It's not your favorite preacher uh, online or on TV or on the radio. You, you maybe get to hear a 45-minute message from them, but in your self-talk, 
each and every day, you're preaching to yourself hour after hour. And what are you preaching to yourself? Are you preaching lies of the devil or the truth of Jesus? When you set God's word as a priority in your life and daily fill your mind and heart with the truth of the gospel, the truth of who God really is, the truth of who he says you are in Christ, the truth of all that he's done for you, how much he loves you, and his promises that never fail, you will be on the path of putting to death the lies of your enemy and mortifying the idolatry of your heart. Preach the beauty and the wonders of the gospel to yourself every day of your life and watch in amazement as the sin in your life is put to death. I want to close this morning to let you know that my lifelong struggle with idolatry has been a 40-year journey with Christ, where he has repeatedly over and over again pushed me out of my comfort zone Christianity, which was driven by my fear of failure, the belief that outside of my comfort zone was a place of rejection and humiliation, and in the end I was going to be exposed as a man who didn't have what it takes. I came into my life with Jesus with low self-esteem, and life was a relentless fight to keep that hidden. It's so tiring trying to live each day in hiding. I learned this from my upbringing, living in a home with a mentally ill father, where we lived on eggshells with the goal to not poke the bear. Although I lived within a family of seven, it wasn't safe. No one was safe. I kept everything to myself, all of life's sin, struggles, failures, confusion, and pain. I hid trying to navigate this experience of growing up and becoming a man on my own. And I realized 15 years ago that what I really felt like was an orphan in the midst of a crowd. So at the age of 25, God used a pastor named Mark Browse to mentor me, to reveal the hidden potential within me, and to push me by faith out of my comfort zone. And every single time my emotions told me, run, run, as far as you can in the opposite direction. Whether it was meeting new people, or leading youth ministry, or teaching small groups, or preaching in front of a crowd, or doing weddings and funerals, or going on the mission field, everything God asked me to do, my emotions said, run. And God truly has a sense of humor. For after 30 years of pastoral ministry, over 600 sermons, over six years as a youth pastor, after leading countless small groups, multiple weddings and funerals, and mission trips. You see, I went on my first mission trip in 1993, and I felt like a fish out of water. And I declared at the end of that trip, well, I experienced that. Now I can just help send others. And here I am nine trips later, and I'm being asked by this church to be the outreach and missions pastor, with has no end in sight on the number of trips that are ahead. God really does have a sense of humor. Through the truth of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, he has transformed my identity, my concept of who he is, and the reason I am here on this planet, a purpose to live for someone and something bigger than myself. I still have remnants of idolatrous comfort zone living that have involved at times vegging out in front of the TV and addiction to sugar. I'm really addicted to sugar. My wife will attest to that. And you see, both of those are my go-to 
when I feel discouraged or frustrated. Over this last week, the Lord has taken me on a journey of repentance as he leads me once again to forsake my idol and comfort zone living through mortifying these sins in my life. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you consider yourself a disciple, a devoted follower of Jesus, and let me make sure you do not walk out of here today without knowing there is no such thing as comfort zone Christianity. Tell me if this sounds like comfort zone Christianity to you. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to read verses uh, 23 through 25. Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? What do you see here, as Jesus saying, is the true characteristics of a follower of his that involves comfort zone Christianity? Nothing. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Does it always sound like comfort zone Christianity? No. Don't get me wrong. Before you accuse me of being a stuffy legalist, God has made sweets and entertainment and recreation and vacations and hobbies and sports and fitness centers and fishing and hunting, even golf for our pleasure and enjoyment. What he hasn't made them for is to be a God who competes for first place in the affections of our heart, something we place our identity in, what we look to to satisfy unmet needs are for our sense of security and happiness. It's far beyond time for you to put to death the idolatry in your life and especially to repent of and renounce comfort zone Christianity. God has some glorious things prepared for those who do. Chris, if you can come on up. This morning I've tried to be transparent and honest and confessional because I want to encourage you to be the same way. Your pastors, with God's help, want Emmanuel Fellowship to be a church that is safe for every person to not have to suffer and struggle alone with their sin or their idolatry or their struggles or their fears or their pain, but to bring it into light so that as you experience love and acceptance and support and encouragement and prayer, you may also experience the power of Jesus Christ to set you free. And I want to give you that opportunity to do that this morning. Go ahead and close your eyes now in a posture of prayer. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus and allow them to fill the depths of your mind and heart. In Revelation 30, 20, he says, Behold, I stand at your heart's door and knock. Will you give him entrance this morning? He already knows the junk that resides there. He just wants to come in and help you get rid of the mess. Hebrews 3, 8 says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Many of you know how God has spoken to you this morning. You know the idol you worship and serve. You know the sin that needs to be put to death. And he wants to meet you here with a prayer partner to set you on the road to freedom. And then finally, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Aren't you sick and tired of living in hiding? Of being weary and burdened in the carrying of the weight of your own sin? This morning, why don't you come to Jesus and hand off your sinful baggage to him? This moment, right now, could be your opportunity to do just that. Pastors, if you want to come on, we'll have some pastors that are stationed around. If you want to go to a pastor to pray. Maybe you have a trusted friend that you feel totally comfortable going to and and saying, hey man, this has been my struggle. Will you pray for me? Why leave without God giving God the opportunity to really truly do a work in your heart? And if you're watching online, sit down with your spouse, your friend, or call somebody this week who you might want to do that with. So let's go ahead and enter that time now. We're going to spend a few minutes, and if you want to Pray with someone. Do that now. If you want to confess your sin to someone, do that now. Or even if there's something else that you're burdened with that you don't want to walk out of here without somebody praying for you, do that now. This is why we're here. Let's go ahead and take that opportunity. I'll turn off my microphone. And then uh, Chris will have a song for us.